Hi, everyone. Welcome to Office Hours. If you're watching on YouTube, you can find out more about what we do at officehours.global. Our first hour is a general discussion of production and IT-related topics where we answer audience-submitted questions. Our second hour is typically a deeper dive into something, and I'm really looking forward to today because today we have our theater folk with us. We are going to be talking about technical theater, how things happen backstage in the world of live performance. Should be a fascinating second hour, so we're all looking forward to that today. Uh, but now we are in our first hour, which means it's time to get to our regular questions. So um, I was going to be the reader until we just had a last-minute glitch here. Jason, can you read or can somebody Gladly, else? yeah. I'll take yeah. it over for Dive you. In. Paul Wall, who's in Austin, Texas, writes in, What are some pointers in upgrading from Synergy 1 to the new Synergy 3 with the rebuilt GUI and auto-discovery so I can combine more computers, increase disk space, and retire some keyboards and mice? And John Preto is going to start off helping us out with that. John? You you threw me through a rabbit hole this morning, Paul. I started upgrade. I downloaded the file uh, uh, whenever it came out about two, three weeks ago. Started the upgrade. You get through the whole upgrade. And it says, oh, we have we have a known issue that you can't, in, you can't install three over to the top of one, right? And I was already logged into Office Hour, so I can't reboot. You have to go out and you have to... You have to delete the first version, and then you have to reboot your machine. Problem number one. Problem number two is you have to pay for the license fee again. So for $30, you get to use it only on three computers. So I'll let you know after the show's over, I'll reboot and bring it back up, and we'll see how it goes. But it's been one. Things are hard with Synergy. I hope that took care of you, Paul. Let's move on to the next question. Gladly. Um, Peter Moore in Auckland, New Zealand writes in, hard to quantify this one, but I had failure of four things at once earlier whilst I was on after hours. My Hughes and Kettner amp went to zero volume. My TV same, my Apple TV four lost video, had to restore it. Mixer volumes way down, then all good. Thoughts? Solar flux? <laughs> Possibly, Tlaloc. Any any intelligence yeah, on this one? You may have had some some sort of brownout, um, and your voltage went down, and your power supplies were just really unhappy, and they either were unable to continue to provide power to your electronics, or they did it poorly. Uh, Chris Fenwick. Yeah, stable power. That's what I would say too. Uh, some something happened. I I had an issue the other day where I thought my UPS. I thought I lost power. And after two days with an electrician, we found out that something went bad in my range hood and it took out three quarters of the power in my entire apartment. Like five of the AC, five of eight AC outlets dead, uh, half of the overhead lights dead. And it was something just in the range hood. So Peter, I would, I'd check your range hood. What were you cooking? Let's go to Alex Lindsay. Alex, you're back. So back. Great. Sorry, everybody. Right before the show, my Sony camera just turned off. Like it was like it was it's it, I got on early. It it's was working to I kept Peter's house. It was connected to Peter's house. I'm there sure. Exactly. That that was it. I one light and my Check the range and my camera just went turned off. I have no idea why. Um anyway, so sorry about that. The um uh, you know, one thing to be very careful of if you are getting brownouts or if you, this happens again, uh, you want to get a voltage regulator. So you want to get something now, AP, uh, you know, your UPS is sometimes will do that. Uh, sometimes they don't. Sometimes they're just passing voltage through. So if they're not producing a proper sine wave or they're not pushing to the batteries, um, you're going to end up with uh, 
just passing um, the bad voltage through uh, to your devices. We deal with this a lot in Africa where we have uh, school and we have a couple other things where we just kind of wear through our power supplies. And so um, this is where you really want a lot of external power supplies <laughs> because you have to replace them. But really what you want to do is condition that, that, um, that, that voltage. So if you're having that issue, um, uh, if it's going up or down, it's going to slowly destroy your power supplies over time. So uh, Furman also makes some good conditioners that you might want to take a look at. All right, next question. Craig Kadoki in Toronto, Canada. Up next, converting a 2D mid-journey image to a 3D object. Has anyone tried this method or other options? Warning, this might take over your weekend. And he's got a YouTube link there. Yeah, so the with uh, with what he's doing here, what he's showing in the video is just modeling it by hand, but inspired by mid-journey. And I think we're going to see a lot of that. I was just playing with some logo ideas and... It's not that I'm going to use that logo that I'm building in mid-journey, but it's, I'm going to go back and I'm going to build that all in 3D or, you know, if I like, you know, what I'm working with, I'm going to rebuild that all and make it something that is built out of a, out of real geometry. Uh, the great thing about mid-journey is, is that you can get a lot of concepts. Um, I was playing, I was playing with the logo yesterday. I probably created 200 concepts in 10 minutes, you know, that I could look at. Um, and then from there, you can go through the trouble of actually building the model after you've already seen largely what you want it to look like. Um, but that's going to give you explicit control. So it's still going to take time to do that. I think that most likely we are going to get to a point where um, that geometry can be generated by the AI um, as well. And then we'll be able to use it in whatever we'd like to. Um, but right now, it's just a, it, he's, it's a very good modeler doing hand modeling from something that he didn't have to come up with. And that's sometimes people are really good at modeling and not necessarily really great at, at concepts. And so MidJourney helps a lot with the concepts and then they can just execute. So it's pretty cool. Uh, next question. Next question comes to us from Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. How would you cover an outdoor theater in a park? Audio, video, streaming? I go ahead, Slalok. So this is a this is an it depends kind of question. We have so many outdoor venues, and um, and the thing about it is is that you change whether or not um, uh, how do, how do I how should I put this? You it changes the it changes a big amount depending on whether you're doing night versus in the daytime. If you're doing it in the daytime, bring lots of ND filters. Um, and if you're doing it at night, uh, test at night and get your levels and get your white balances for the lighting that you're dealing with um, and work with your lighting designer to make sure that you can have um, an interesting look. Uh, you're you're going to white balance to your stage lighting and then you're going to end up with really, really blue everywhere else. So think about how that works into to your overall aesthetics. Um, be concerned about rain, be concerned about humidity, and and be concerned about heat. Go ahead, Bill. Everything Tlaloc just said is what I've faced. You know, I used to work in Phoenix mostly, and when you're outdoors shooting, you've got such a difficulty with sun because it can be so intense, and you can't control the direction it's coming from. Typically, when we're shooting, we use reflectors, large reflectors and things like that to try to balance somebody's face on stage with the background, which might be in direct sun, and they might be in deep shadow. And that split uh, in terms of range of contrast can be very difficult to work with for many cameras. So, uh, But for a theater performance where you can't really bring in reflectors like that, it can be a challenge. So the first thing I do is get out my compass and try to figure out which direction the sun is going to be in at the time that I'm trying to shoot this outdoor performance or hope that they have some kind of scrimming or something overhead because the sun can be a real challenge in, in theater outdoors. 
Yeah, we try to get away with uh, silks, you know, really large ones. And sometimes these will be 40, 50 feet long and 20 feet wide or even more. Um, and, you know, if we can get away with, if they're okay with that and knowing what time of day you're going to do the event, <laughs> it helps a lot to figure out where the sun's going to be. We added, we once added a silk to a stage and the sun was literally coming the other trail. <laughs> it was just coming the completely opposite direction. We were like, didn't think about that. So, um, so using sun models is really useful so that you know what time there's a lot of, you know, Google Earth will do it, but you can also, there's, there's some, I think it's called sun tracker or sun setter that we use um, so that we can go out and say, okay, what is it going to look like at the, t in the frame that I need it in and then figuring out where those silks might be, or if that's not going to be useful. Um, and uh, a lot of times we try to build them into the design for the stage. So instead of trying to just put a silk over, like, can we build something that looks really nice, but happens to diffuse a lot of light um, in that area. And that, that has helped us a lot in, in these areas. The thing you do have to pay attention to a lot is weather. Um, and we usually, uh, I don't do a lot of outdoor work because of this. <laughs> so I, um, a lot of my, sh the shows I work on have pretty big budgets and I remind the client about every week that anything could happen. And, um, you know, we've, we've mostly been okay and not had too many things rained out. But once you get, when you, when you have a quarter million dollar show get rained out once and there's nothing you can do about it, it's not, it's not your fault. Uh, you, you tend to remind people over and over again that, um, we saw one that, uh, we were told that it never rains in Vegas. <laughs> like we've told that it's never rains in Vegas. And I was like, but I still need a tent. Like I was like, I need a tent no matter what. You know, we were, this was a little job for us, but a big job for a client. Um, it was a red carpet outside. And we were told that it was definitely not going to rain. And we demanded a tent. Like I was like, I'm not going to put my gear in the sun or outside or anything else. You will need to give me a tent or I won't, I won't come. Uh, it was as if buckets had just been poured out of the sky. I mean, it was the most amount of rain I'd ever seen almost anywhere, let alone Vegas, probably did a couple million dollars of damage because, you know, the Digicos and everything else were just sitting out in the sun. <laughs> you know, like, there was nothing, there was nothing, they were just soaked. The water was literally running out of the mixers. Uh, go ahead, Tlaloc. So I wanted to jump back in and say um, that if, if you're doing an event that is being streamed or, or videoed, that's um, that's one thing. If you're doing a, the a theater piece, if you're doing, you know, Shakespeare in the park, or if you're doing actual theater in, the, in, 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 in a park or in a semi-outdoor venue or anything like that, you may not be able to work with silks because you, you want control of the, of the light. Um, and so if it's gonna be, if the show's gonna be at 7.30, it's summer and the sunset is happening at, at eight, you need to do your rehearsals at 7.30. You need to figure out exactly what the lighting is going to do with that much ambient light from the sun. The sun is an incredible HMI. <laughs> like the sun, the sun does an amazing amounts of light. It's a, and it's a particular color. It's, and it changes it's so, color. It's so hard to dim. It's so hard yeah, to dim. Yeah, it's so hard to dim. Like I call my, I call my friend and it, it just doesn't do it. But, um, uh, <laughs> but like it changes color with weather. It changes color with, time of day and you have to kind of keep that in mind when you're dealing with your light balance or your white balancing of your cameras um and i as a lighting designer that has worked at, in outdoor venues before oftentimes have to do my cueing in the middle of the night in order to have it be dark so i can really see what's going on yeah and the, and the last thing i'll say is that if you start adding silks you also have to pay attention to the to the um uh, to the weather because wind becomes a big deal. So you, you have to pay attention to what that looks like. And there's all kinds of, 
you know, if you're doing it in front of a lot of people, there's all kinds of structural and insurance and, and safety things that you need to put in. We've seen issues where that hasn't been managed well. Um, but remember that anything you put up like that is going to turn into a big sale. Um, and I've had some close calls uh, <laughs> on putting things up that I thought were going to protect my equipment or or do lighting. And then we were worried that it was going to actually hurt somebody. So uh, so the um, uh, you definitely want to pay attention to that as well. Go ahead, Bill. So two two helpful apps for your phone. There's one called Sun Surveyor, which will track sun. The one I actually like more than that is called Commander Compass. and allows you to put in the date and time, and it will tell you uh, in a 3D model, in the case of Commander Compass, it may also do that in Sun Surveyor, tell you exactly, you can stand and turn around and know exactly where the sun will be on any particular date and time. It's useful. Next question. Douglas Carmichael up next. Has anyone had an experience with MongoDB and when would you use it in place of PostgreSQL or another relational database? I'm considering using it for a genealogy project with a PHP front end. Go ahead, John. SQL has been around since the 80s and it's it's structured and it's it's very uh, rigid in its in its uh, creation and field structure. And Mongo is more for pages, it's more flexible for storing like pages or JSON, those sort of things. And if you're going to use Mongo, I suggest you use MongoDB Atlas in the cloud. You can get started for free. It's a really, really great environment. Yeah, my, um, I've worked on a couple projects where we had MongoDB. I probably wouldn't, wouldn't use it again um, it, just because it, it will, you can get up to speed really quickly. So if, you're, if this is a small project, and you're putting it together, I think it works great. Um, if you want it to scale and you want to have a lot of simultaneous users, um, it's less stable, you know, and 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 so we've, we've definitely had problems. I mean, I think that I've talked about this before, but as we start to abstract a lot of these things into things that are newer, faster, easier, um, we, we start seeing some of the stability and security issues that that arise, you know, from that process. And, and we've had our own challenges with Mongo um, in that in that re in that respect. Next question. Next question comes from Steve Yuroff in Madison, Wisconsin. If I enabled 4K Dolby Vision on my Apple TV, I get two to three second intervals of black screen and no audio when YouTube switches from main video to ads. And on the switch back, is there a way to avoid this other than using HDR or SDR? Go ahead, Jason. My immediate thought is, are you only getting that at, on, on the YouTube app? Or, 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 you know, are you able to do Dolby Vision elsewhere can you can you play apple tv and with without any issue um i've never seen it fail on one and work on the other go ahead chris um at the risk of spending your money steve um i gotta say i love youtube premium i know that's not that's not gonna solve your immediate problem but like when i watch when i sit down to watch a youtube video with somebody who's not paying to not have the ads an ad pops up in the middle of the video and it literally just sucks my soul out. It's like the saddest thing when an ad pops up in the middle of a YouTube video. And, and I realize that there's another tech problem here and I, I don't mean to make light of it, but if, you did, if YouTube wasn't switching away to ads, you wouldn't have this particular problem. Well, and YouTube doesn't use Dolby Vision, so I'm not sure exactly you know, what that would what that would actually look like. But I do think that you're basically the the two to second, it's probably exactly two seconds if you time it. And that is the length of the segment that it's delivering via HLS. So basically it's jumping from one, it, you have a, you have a um, it's coming to you and then basically it has to jump to another stream 
and it takes two seconds. The segments, the length, the segment length on YouTube is a two second length uh, segment length. Um, now there's um, the segment length on YouTube. I think actually corresponds also to the GOP, but that's not always the case. Sometimes we have a longer segment and a shorter GOP. But in this case, I'm pretty sure that YouTube sits at a two second GOP and a two second um, uh, segment. And in that realm, it has to load that segment before it can deliver it to you. So that's probably what's happening there. I will underline with Chris that. YouTube Premium is pretty awesome. You know, like I, 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 I every once in a while, my, I've changed my credit card or something, and it gets out, and then suddenly I have ads for like a couple days as I get around to, oh, I'm going to get around to doing it. I don't know how anybody watches YouTube with ads. Like, I just don't understand the, I don't understand how anyone would think that that was okay. It makes to me be honest. sad. It's, it, it, I just don't understand how anyone would do it. You know, like it's, it's really a horrible experience, um, you know, with ads. So I, mean, I would highly recommend it. I would drink two less coffees a month and, and you know, or, or, may, or buy a coffee maker and, and ha they're, they're, it's worth it. I promise it's worth it. Um, the other time you'll see uh, Apple TV do the switch is it switches. It does what you're talking about for me every time I go out of the interface and into playout because I have my playout set to follow the um, original frame rate. And so what it has to do is it switches out of 30 frame to 24 every single time, but I, I tell it, I don't want it to force a frame rate from the Apple TV. And I also, even if it's, I don't want it to force 24, I don't want it to force 30. So there's a setting in the Apple TV that says, maintain the the, the origin the origination frame rate, I think is what it's called, or original frame rate. So it has to do the switch between the interface and the playback. And so you start hearing the audio about a second before the video. Um, and all I can say is you get used to it. <laughs> it doesn't bother me, but it's not in the middle of the show. It's just at the beginning of every show that I watch on any service. Uh, next question. Paul Wallace, Austin, Texas. So oh, this will be fun. What are the panelists' brand loyalties with gaff tape, electrical tape, and do you ever use scotch tape? Go ahead, Jason. Um, Pro-gaff pro for gaff tape. I don't have a brand loyalty for electrical tape and scotch tape, but it's already a trademark. So, yeah. Go ahead, Tlaloc. Yeah, Pro-tapes, which does Pro-gaff, absolutely uh, my number one go-to. Um, remember, with with gaff tape, you can get uh, multiple widths. You can get three-inch gaff tape that has no adhesive in the middle. If you're trying to um, not get goop all over your your cables, they come in all different colors. Gaff's the best. Also, um, <clears throat> uh, when it comes to electrical tape, my brand loyalty is about paying at least the middle of the road, if not the most, for electrical tape. Because the adhesives are very different, and it'll just be on your hands for 12 days if you get the cheap stuff. Yeah, go ahead, Bill. I also, okay, so for me, I'm a little obsessive about gaff tape. And what I want to know is that how long has that role been in my <laughs> library? Because gaff tape does age over the course of 10 years, and I've got some rolls that probably go back that. So I, for me, I, sure tape, uh, the, the pro tape that they mentioned, there's a lot of good gaff tape out there, but I want to, I just always want to buy not the cheapest thing you can find, but a good quality tape from a vendor who sells through a lot. So it hasn't been sitting in the back room for 10 years because they bought too much back in you know a decade ago and it's a weird thing but i get a new roll of gaff tape and the first thing i do is quickly pull off six inches next to my ear and listen to how it sounds coming off because there's a particular sound that good gaff tape makes coming off the roll and you go it's fresh the the stickiness cue is exactly right and that makes me happy to hear that sound if i don't hear it i put that as the b-roll and try mm -hmm. to find another roll that's better good matt 
Yeah, so the uh, same thing with, with the gaff tape that everyone's said, but uh, we will use clear packing tape to protect spike marks on uh, that we put down, you know, for where set pieces go or where actors need to go. And then another nice thing to have in your kit is rescue tape, which isn't that actually tape. It's a uh, it's a rubber that bonds to itself. You can use it for fixing plumbing leaks, um, but I'll also use it for... I've used it on uh, on headset microphones to attach the uh, the the cable in the back to as strain relief, and it's it's a handy thing to have in your kit. And once it bonds, though, it doesn't it, it doesn't really yeah. unbond, right? It's, this is a it's, it's a pretty permanent solution. Uh, go ahead, uh, Tlaloc. Just a real quick follow up to say that um, when Matt said they use packing tape to cover their spike marks, I just about I twitched a little bit. So. I would say use I would I would say use Marley tape. Marley tape is thicker, and it is uh, the the adhesive is better. It'll stay with the plastic when you pull it up rather than, than staying on your floor, um, and it's gonna it's gonna last a lot longer. It's more expensive, but Marley tape and Marley is the the floor that's used for dance floors, so that. Um, the people's feet are not uh, hurt so much when they dance, and so and and the slip rate is the right uh, slip rate for ballet dancers. Yes, that's very very technical answer there. Um, yeah, the uh, I um, I use the ProGraph as well. You also, when you go to a new venue, you may want to ask if they have any approved gaff tape. So, for instance, at Moscone Center, you need to use Bond B O N N, and we used to buy it by the box because if they caught you using anything else, they would. They would make you pull it all up. So, um, and uh, so, so that was, we, we learned that the first time. Uh, and it's not as sticky. It's really annoying. It's a super annoying gaff tape, um, but it's not as sticky, which means it doesn't stick. They know that the, it won't get as much goo on their floor, which is why they require you to use it. Um, but it's, we also think that somebody is probably getting a lot of good dinners out of that because it was a local, <laughs> I think it was like a local gaff company. Anyway, so, um, uh, but the other thing is, is that, Remember that gaff tape is not, even though it's great to stick on a lot of things, it's still sticky. So one of the other things to remember is, is that if you're putting it on a wall, especially one that's expensive, um, really think about putting down painter's tape on the wall first, and then you put the gaff tape on top of that. So you, you, you get a bigger space of it if you're going to attach it. We've had people attach stuff to expensive walls uh, with gaff tape, and, and then we have to pay for that piece to be fixed. It's really funny because it'll be like a little problem, but they have to repaint the entire ceiling or the entire wall to match it correctly to the thing. And there's a bunch of conversations. And just in case you're wondering, it costs about $1,800. <laughs> Go ahead and tell look. Black tech will change your change your life if you're using incandescent lights black tack is it, it is a black aluminum foil with an adhesive back so um you you can put it on hot lights if you use gaff tape on hot i was just teaching somebody about this the other day if you put, use gaff tape on hot lights it'll get it to be turn it into charcoal one Make it, it's a fire two, and um, the adhesive will not not withstand the heat, and it'll just kind of float to, uh, onto your actors at some point, and it'll be super. Very cool. Uh, next question. Next question comes from Alex Lindsay in Nevada, California. Show and tell Fridays. Have the panelists added any toys? I mean, tools recently. <laughs> Go ahead, Lulluk. I just got a small rig. Um, uh, component for my camera that will allow me to add rails um yep. so that i can add the um 
because I got the wrong thing the first time, which happens. Um, but then this will this allow me to add the V-mount battery uh, system that I've just pers- uh, just just invested in. So I'm excited. And did you get the small rig uh, battery system as well? No, I, I ended up getting... Um, because the cool thing about the Ray, small rig... Pick. Right. So the cool thing about the small rig version of that, um, number one is always remember that the rails are slightly different on the small rigs than everybody else. So I think they do that on purpose. Nothing quite fits quite right. So if you don't get all small rig things, they sometimes it's a little clunky. Um, and I think that they do it on purpose, to be honest. But anyway, but I have... so. I could either resist it and say, I'm not buying any small rig, but I already have so much small rig stuff. Once I realized it, I was like, oh, I might as well just use small rig. So a um, couple things. One is small rig makes a toolkit that has tons of screws and all the tools that you need, and it goes into a little bag. It will make you super happy because you just have it in the bag and you open it up and you can add a couple things to it. It's got all the screws that you would need for a small rig and all the tools that you need for any of the small rigs that are there. Specifically with the battery pack, though, um, is that the small rig battery pack has D-tap, USB, and um, the barrel pins on the side so that if you take any old V-mount and you slap it on it, you've got all those converters on the actual m- camera mount as opposed to needing them for the coming out of the battery, um, which I have learned is super useful. <laughs> you know, so, so in that, in that area, um, yeah, so I've got a couple of the small rig battery systems and the batteries i get have all those converters too which means i can use both <laughs> so so it's it's uh at some point i'll overdrive the batteries but i haven't done that yet go ahead chris alex it sounds like you're saying that not only did they invent their own rail system but they've invented their own screw system so please buy our screws anyway um so i didn't buy anything technical but i did buy something of interest i have this A new cookie. desk a new desk. I added six feet. Now, did you of, make it or did you buy it? <clears throat> I could have made it, but it's not. It's IKEA. Um, first of all, a few a few highlights here. Uh, it, if something were to happen to me, and and you guys need to get into all my accounts, here's where I keep my pass my passwords posted. <laughs> That's over here. On the desk. <laughs> and then also, I opted for the Alex. It's a. Uh, it's a sh- it's a drawer system. I have I have them over here too, but this is a short drawer system. It's exactly the right height to put a board across, and you make a desk out of it. And they're nice little drawers. So I don't know if you can you see this here. And let me move my yeah, mic out of the way. It's got a white background. We can see drawer here, and then there's drawers over here as well. See that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, I it was super excited because I measured the distance from the front edge of my current desk to the back wall. And it was this weird, like 79 and a quarter inches. And the, the tabletop from that I got from Ikea, which is, you know, an a la carte item, 78 and three quarter inches. So it was just fit in there. Perfect. But added desk space is cool. And these, I, I will say these are easy to build these Alex drawers and you know, I've heard Alex gets a cut out of it. <laughs> I was just surprised you didn't use a Kulin, but I'm definitely glad that you didn't get a Herdal because anything is an improvement over a Herdal. <laughs> the Alex drawers are, they're fun to build. I have a lot of them. I, have, I think I have 15 drawers in here. Al, uh, uh, Mickey said that they were going to add a, have a panelist question that asked, how many drawers do you have? And he, and he was going to say that 15 is too many and I can't be on the panel anymore. 
You know, funny things. I have almost no. I I have like two drawers, one drawer. Everything else is hooked. So drawers, drawers, so I can see drawers get a lot of uh, hate. Uh, There's, uh, I think it's a savage says drawers is where you put things to die. Um, I like a drawer. I like the tidiness of it. I put a label on the front of drawers and it tells me what's in it. Mm -hmm. And yeah, sometimes sometimes stuff gets lost. But what's the alternative? Just everything getting dust. Anything behind me is that, that's the alternative. Yeah, that's, that, Lots that of metal racks a, with, that is an with, with allergy things sitting there behind you. <laughs> I don't have any allergies. Uh, go ahead, Bill. I don't mind a drawer. I, I enjoy for, drawers. Some people for hate classic them. equipment. Vintage dust is a plus. <laughs> go, ahead, go ahead, Bill. So I got my new toy. My new MacBook came, uh, and so it was seven hours last night to reprovision it from my online backup. And hopefully this weekend, everything ends up switching over. It's going to be interesting. One of the things I'm confused about is that they drop one port in favor of going back to MagSafe. And I didn't realize and actually like the fact that one of my my power port was also a data port on my previous model, which means that I got to put my OWC dock to feed power and have four ports instead of three. So I know everybody politic to please bring back MagSafe, please bring back MagSafe. But that in, in the very first day, I thought, you know, is that a step forward or a step back? I'm not sure. Go, Jason. So I've been I've been playing around um, again with with the OWC Go Dock, and I thought, you know, how do I want to play with a dock if not with you know a 15 inch MacBook Air? And um, I I like it. Um, not sure if I'll keep it, but you know, this concrete floor, I might drop it. So not, not going to play around like this. Good, Chris. Hey, Bill, uh, if you, ha- if you have any, uh, desire or need, uh, I'm going to be having a lab later on how to install the ACE plugin for on the <laughs> end machine. I'll be there. Tell me what Excellent. time and where. Uh, Excellent. Definitely. I got, I, um, I, I got no toy so this is this is my tour for the week. Uh, this was recommended by Mickey. We we were recording audio um, at the soccer game last week, and it was uh, too windy for the shotguns. Did you buy a and clip? we knew I, I did buy a clip. So so anyway, so this is this is the open end of it. Ooh, yes. other, oh yes. Oh no, that's here. a zeppelin. So this is, yeah. This is the Rycote. Um, I think it's the Cyclone, and but it's specifically built for the surround. So it's it, this is built for the Ambio mic um, that's there. So it suspends it. And then it has this, and then I I did order a dead cat that's coming uh, later next week uh, for it. But it all when it when it all comes together, it looks like looks like that. So if you ever wonder what that looks like, that's what it looks like on the inside. Uh, this is what it looks like on the outside. And I'm gonna take it to Hatteras and see if we can't capture some um, some cool audio uh, when you know from the beach. So we'll see. That looks awesome. I'm about a less expensive thing. You can pack Scorpio. your underwear and socks in that in your luggage. It's <laughs> <laughs> exactly, extra protection. Exactly. Uh, next question. Oh wait, next before question. before we do that, oh. just a real quick reminder that you can ask questions in the first hour. Uh, we've got a ton of questions stacking up for the second hour already. So definitely, I think it's going to be a great second hour on stage automation. I'm super excited about it, um, and I've got, I've got a bunch of questions myself. Um, anyway, so but uh, uh, if you have questions about stage automation, go ahead and throw those in for the second hour. If you've got questions, general questions like what we're talking about right now, uh, go ahead and throw those in for the first hour, and make sure to vote on those questions so that we know what order. You want us to manage them in. Let's go ahead to the next question. Hasma Gajar comes back in from Cape Town, South Africa. A Stream Deck app auto launches on login. How do I stop that as it is not in the uh, login items list? 
where is it if it's not in the logins? Usually it's in log, it's in the login items. I don't know where else my, and, and I will say that my stream deck, I don't believe starts up. Because I don't, I didn't know. <laughs> it might, you know, it might be being activated. I, what I would do is try to restart the, um, restart your computer without the stream deck plugged in. It may be a function of the stream deck being plugged into your computer to see if it starts up automatically still and starts looking for it or not. Um, because I can't, you know, that's the only thing I can think of that would activate that when it's not in a lock-in state. Um, I don't know of any other place to put it. Yeah, go ahead, Jason. Uh, took me a second. Um, it, it's so new Mac OS. It, uh, yeah, this annoyed me so much that I actually completely got rid of the software. But um, yeah, um, allow in background. If you uncheck that and then remove um, remove the app, install it back again, it will say, "Can I be in the background, please, please, please?" If you say no, that that should disrupt it. Next question. Next question comes from, um, oh, that was back again. Tommy Schatz in St. Paul, Minnesota. What are the preferred surfaces or finishes for projecting onto? Outdoor stage and house of worship, not for permanent installs, and think of reuse. Go ahead, Jason. Oh, I'm sorry. I should not be on that one. I don't, I don't know why that, sorry. Yeah, so the, the um, and, and, and I guess, so you're talking about projecting to, oh yeah, go ahead, Slalok. Okay, so projection surfaces have um, multiple different <clears throat> values that you need to think about. The reflectivity of it and the diffusion of it. And as a projection designer in theater, we project onto all kinds of surfaces for all kinds of reasons. We might, we might even project onto black because the best thing about that is that you can pop something out of it and have it feel like there's no other, there's no... There's no 16 by 9 square, which can be incredibly boring. <laughs> I know we do that here, but it can be incredibly boring in, in a theater. You want to break, break those borders a little bit. Um, but when, you, when, you're in, what, when, you're, when you're in a theater for film, when you're in a cinema, then you want a very specific reflectivity and a very ref specific range of view so that um, you get a really, really high quality image for the people that are in a dark room with no ambient light. And so it really depends on what you're trying to, to accomplish. Um, and, and then of course there's the, uh, there's rear projection and front projection. So if you're using front rear projection, you need to make sure that the, that the material has the amount uh, can bring the amount of light you need to see the information through it, but does not show a big orb of where the project projector, the the source, the projection source is coming from. And I've found that it's a little confusing. You you might think a darker RP screen would do less of that, but actually, the gray ones have have been seem to be the best. The middle of the road, not white, not not black, in order to diffuse that center source orb, and it's a super. It's a science. Let's say it that way. Good, Bill. Yeah, there are a couple of stats. Gain for the screen, how much light it reflects. Uh, Tlaloc hit most of the big points. I just note that um, I've I've generally relied on some of the big fabric. If I'm doing fabric screens, uh, places like Rosebrand have a lot of variation in their screen projection stuff that you can buy. Uh, just in bolts and then make a screen surface. Uh, beyond that, I think Tlaloc hit 99% of what you need to know. 
Yeah, the one that we've used in the past is a company called, um, for painting something, it's Paint on Screens is the brand name. And there's a lot of different versions of it. There's 4K, there's high gain, there's low gain. There's, you know, so the low gain tends to be more, more um, project, you know, outdoor, it's probably not as good. I mean, or the high gain is not as good outdoors. Low gain is better on the out, outside ones, that, or at least that's been our experience. Um, so, so I think that, uh, you know, that's the paint on one. Um, uh, there's also a lot of, uh, daylight is the one we probably use the most for screen screens. Um, so those are the ones we've ordered. Um, these are, they come in all kinds of different sizes. Some of them unfold. Some of them don't, you know, some of them are there. I have a screen, uh, that I take out every once in a while. It's about a 10, 10 or 12 foot screen. And it, it cost me, I think $80 on Woot like 10 years ago. And it works, it works fine. Um, and it's about 10 foot and it, it will set up in about 15 minutes and it has a lot of tension to it and it actually goes together and you can you can check it. <laughs> so so I've used it actually in a couple of different places. So uh, you can decide how, you know, how big you want it as well. And you, you, that's really, I would say for a large number of people, 30 feet is the minimum size, but for small get togethers and families, uh, 10 feet is, actually works pretty well. Go ahead, Bill. Yeah, actually on that note, we used to have an inflatable and they, they make these, they're not high tech, but you can get an inflatable screen they for a backyard be. circumstance. <laughs> yeah. And if you use a lot of uh, spikes into the ground and a lot of guy, because as we were talking about with scrims and things like that, these big screens can become uh, <laughs> hot air balloons if you're not Yeah, careful. I mean, so for those larger ones that you inflate, um, the thing you have to kind of take into account uh, for those, and I think I have a picture of one that in Cambodia that we used. Um, it's about a 30 foot, uh, 30 foot system. Um, and the thing you have to kind of keep in mind is that they are, um, they are sails, um, and they're full of air and they will, you know, so you basically, we ended up using, uh, water ballasts. So these are big tanks and then we pour water, you know, we, we set them where they need to be and then we pour water into them to give them weight. And we had, I think six water, water ballasts to tie that in. So, you know, that, that is kind of a, that's par with the course of what you want to do. Oh, here we go. I got a picture of it. So this is, I guess it was only four, but let, let me show you this. This is a, this is the blow up screen. And we use this in Anchor Watt. Um, let's see if I can see that. There we go. So, so here you can see um, the ballasts. This is a 30 foot blow up screen. Didn't take very long to put it together, um, but you can see the ballasts coming down here. So these are, these are all full of water. Um, that makes them easier to ship um, to get them where you, where you need them to be. Uh, and you'll see there's a little bit of structure in the back, but really it's it's held there. The other problem is, is that this screen will go in and out with the wind. So you can't find perfect focus. So we had two Barco 4Ks, you know, on this, um, you know, and getting them focused was a problem because they'd be focused out here, but the center part is coming in and out um, during, you know, during the show. You do want to try to figure out, you, and some of it's luck and some of it was design. We tried to figure out where the wind was going normally. So what is, wind has a tendency to go normally through a system at the same, in the same way, especially in a place like Anchor Watt where there's a lot of walls and stuff like that. It'll focus certain directions. And so what we try to do is make sure that the, the, um, the screen was parallel to the, you know, was as parallel as we could make it to the wind direction so that it would, it would go in and out, but it wasn't getting pulled back and forth. Um, too heavily because again that'll that'll affect your focus. Um, next question. How's my Kajar in Cape Town, South Africa? A Keynote update now supports SVG. What is SVG and how does the support in Keynote step up uh, versus how we create uh, relative to how we create slide decks? Good, Chris. Uh, hey, Hasbuk, how you doing? Uh, 
SVG stands for Scalable Vector Graphic. It's basically like an EPS or an or an Illustrator file. I, I'm I'm not an I'm not 100 sure, but it's it's really kind of like a I believe it's sort of a more generic kind of scalable vector graphic. And in terms of like what exactly you can do with it, so like here's just a, a vector graph SVG that happens to be on my system. And if we drag this into Keynote, I drag this over here, you could see. Oh, it's a tiny little file, right? But because it's a vector graphic, I can um, I can scale it up basically infinitely because it is it's not an image, it's not a graphic, it's math that draws an image, and because it's math, you can multiply it by numbers, and it and it you know it just gets bigger. Um, I know that illustrate Chris. Uh, I think that that one. If you have that one in there, a question for you. If you go, if you select it and you uh, go to format and down to shapes and lines, let's you do see this a, together. Let's do this together. Yeah, let's do this together. So here it is. Um, you, I'll show you this, it. and then you can show me how to install. Uh, um, <laughs> okay. What am I looking for? All right. So, uh, so the you're looking for menu. under the format menu. Take a look and see. Do you see break apart under lines and shapes? Lines and shapes. Say break apart. That's the only one, the only option you have there. Uh, did it say add too many shapes? No, it says this image may look different. Yeah, Parts of this image are not supported and were yeah. removed or changed. So this actually, is still starting. It looks quite a bit that different. Yeah, yeah um, it, it's probably, there's, yeah, this this may, this that's because what happened was there was, that's just an image in the in, inside of that or it's the way it's, the way it's broken there. But with some SVGs, this is the big change. You could bring in EPSs in the past and you could scale them up and they'd have an infinite scale. But with the SVGs, if they're built properly, you can break them apart and then you can also turn them into shapes. Um, and Jason, I'll let you go ahead and-, and uh, Alex basically uh, covered it. Yeah, you can turn them into shapes, you can animate them, um, you, can, you can address the color space of the shape individually. And the neat part is even if you've got a long deck, SVGs are tiny compared to just yeah. Just about everything else. And, so, yeah, and, go ahead. But, but the big thing is that being able to change the SVG, break it up and change it to a shape is a huge deal because yes. now what happens is you have a color scheme that you're planning to use and you've got outlines. And what that means is that now you can, you can change all the colors to the color scheme that you're using for your presentation as opposed to whatever that was when someone saved it out as an EPS. So, so and you can also save it if you, um, in Keynote, uh, there is a, uh, there is, let's see here. I'll see if I can show it, show it to you here. I'm sorry, a new, new file here. Um, in Keynote, if I want to add something, let's see here. So um, one of the things, oh, I, sorry, I'm on two different screens. Uh, but one of the things that I can do, oh, I can do it here. Yeah. So shapes, I have, because I have down here, I have my shapes. So these shapes are, my old logos, I have people, I have satellite trucks and satellites, uh, cameras, PTZ, drones, Earth light, which is without Antarctica, because who needs Antarctica on a map? Oh, um, that's and, um, and so, and I have a US light, which is, I just got rid of all the other stuff around it um, so that I had just that selected. And so I've, I've made those adjustments to the shapes, but these, whoops, this used to be very hard. My shapes was stuff that was designed to be used. Now you can take SVGs and make, turn it into my shapes. And when I add it, you know, I can take this and just um, 
you know, make it whatever color. You can't a, do that with a P EPS. So you need it to be a shape. And that's what, now I did this with a, I brought these shapes in, because this is how I like, oh, this is how I do layouts. I'm gonna, is that oh, a flying saucer? This. No, it's a guy. It's, it's a guy from the top. Come on. Come on. You're it doing looks like flying saucer, people. dude. I, I got Just it. Just saying, yeah, I think you're doing a lot of work for Area 51 and you're not telling us. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know stuff. No comment. You've been read in. Yeah, exactly. Um, so so anyway, so the point is, is that I can change those, those, those shapes and I can make, but I can include it in my shapes. And so when I'm doing layouts, um, it makes it a lot easier to, you know, put some of this stuff. This is, a, this is one sample of some of my layouts. Anyway, so the point is, is that the, that the way I did that in the past was that I, there was a thing called AI to Keynote, which was like this weird little plugin that I thought would hack my system, but I needed to use it. So I'd bring in those shapes and convert them so that they'd open up in Keynote and then I'd make them my shapes. So now we don't have to do that. The SVG, you can bring SVGs in, you can convert them to shapes, you can make your whole library of the things that you're laying out. It's, it's a really important, we've been asking for the ability to bring this in for 20 years <laughs> like, so, by so the way like, keynote's like 20 years old so like just so you know, like, like version one we were like hey this is great can we bring stuff in from illustrator oh we're working on it i got that answer for 20 years so i'm really excited that we had now have svg go ahead uh yeah chris so 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 you kind of answered my question um so eps files to me was always sort of the generic of scalable and then illustrator is a is a tiny subset of eps right. files in that you can have layers now i just tried to pull in an illustrator file that didn't work i didn't get the break apart but i also tried to pull in an eps file and i didn't get the break apart as an option is right that true that's true because those are yep. those are encapsulated and they're not you have to it has to be an SVG and that's the that's the advantage but that's you could bring in the EPSs and PDFs and everything else before what you couldn't do is break it apart and what you also couldn't do is assign colors to it so is the break apart menu item new because of SVG no no, no. That's, so what could around. you break apart before SVG just well, so so if I take if I take this shape let's say screen um, please oh yeah sorry. Um, so if I grab, let's say, this uh, satellite here, and I uh, my my transmission satellite that I have here, um, what I can do is I can go. You can't you won't be able to see it because I'm that's another screen. But I say, okay, I want to break it apart. So now it's in the I've broken it into its individual it. items, and I can sit there and go. I want to. Um, so now I can delete that, sure. you know, and delete this and, and, and have a different, you know. A broken satellite. I can I double click on, the, oops, I can, you can also, yeah, there's, if I, yeah, so you can start to edit. The other thing you can do here is I can go in and I can say, uh, make editable because it's a shape. So now I have the curves. So I can, you know, grab onto it, you know, and, and actually change the shape, you know, from, from that. So those are the, so now it's firing instead of receiving. <laughs> so, so anyway, so, um, uh, so the- a satellite weapon. Yeah, exactly. So, so the point is, is that, that those tools are now available to us. When you had PDFs and EPSs, we couldn't edit the, at the edges. We couldn't break up the shapes. Um, and, and I know that we probably spent a lot of time talking about something that you know, people are like, okay, but some of us make a lot of keynote documents. And this is a really key add addition. The only thing missing now is, I mean, there's some animation stuff we'd like to see, but the only thing from shapes is getting USDZ in. So once we get 3D models into the Keynote, our, our presentations will be. So in the hierarchy of uh, scalable graphics, which do you think is the most powerful, SVG or AI? Uh, AI? That's a hard question. The most, so 
yeah, Illustrator files are more powerful. SVG are more transportable. They're more compatible. You Universal. know, so EPS and, and especially SVG. SVG is much more compatible than AI because it only works with things that can that can grok AI. But but SVG will work in the web. It'll work everywhere. Right. So it was the and right format the, to use. And what does the encapsulated in encapsulated PostScript file mean? Encapsulated. It's not code. <laughs> like PostScript, PostScript is like just code. Like it's like it's the code of the curves. You know, and that's what we started with. Um, but encapsulated PostScript is, I'm going to pull this all into an image, kind of like USDZ. USD is a folder of things and Z is zip it. You know, we're going to zip it together. So an encapsulated uh, PostScript is a single file. Let's go to the next Thank question. Uh, next one comes to us from David Brady in New York City. And David says, any go-to places to get custom-made USB cables? I have a need for some USB-C to USB mini and micro. Would rather have native than use adapters. I go, Jason. Okay, this is half an answer. I've never, I've never needed a custom cable that that Gotham can't do um, ever. Uh, that said, I've never done USB C to USB Mini or Micro without just getting them prefab. So I, I, I don't know. I would try yeah. Gotham. I would also look at Cable Matters or um, Clark Cable or Monoprice just to see what they have there. I mean, if they have to be very specific sizes, that's one thing, but. USB cables are pretty precision when it comes to building these cables. I don't know. I think I'd want them to be prefabbed somewhere. And I think you may be able to find those. Um, I think even Monoprice may have them for like $3, you know. So definitely take a, take, take a look at that before you get, have someone build them. They're, it's complex. Next question. James Fossilin, and I thought for a minute this was wrongly categorized, but I don't think it is now. Uh, how do the theater designers on the panel think about their experiences? Uh, how do they think that their experiences affect work? Outside the theater, for example, streaming work. Go ahead, Well, I mean, I think I, it it helps me because I've I've learned a lot about a, a lot of different things. It's it you need to know so much and think so holistically in the theater, in in a way that's sort of different than, for example, working on film where things are so departmentalized and you are not allowed to sort of cross cross anywhere across those disciplines at all. So I've had to think a lot about how the whole system works and um, what problems come up in those ways. And I think that's probably my biggest value add when it comes to the streaming and other things. Go ahead, Matt. Yeah, I the some of the streaming things that I've picked up since COVID happened, like having an idea of structure of, and run of shows. You know, so I've had people wanted to do things and not it's like okay so you're doing this now how are you getting to here to here to here it's like you need connective pieces um but then also you know technology wise it, you know it's always like learning the latest thing or what's the tool that's going to solve this and then that's a whole uh you know backlog of, ex of experiences and knowledge that it's like okay i can use this to edit this or i can use this to you know control something else uh, next, next question. Next one comes to us from David Brady in New York City. Uh, so Whisper does a great job at transcription, but what are the best for translation? I have some events that I need to translate the Japanese to English and vice versa for closed captioning. Go ahead, John. GPT-4 speaks 20 languages. It works pretty darn well. Give it a try. Paid version, $20 a month. Yeah, and I would also look at you know, Mac Whisper. I think is going down the language route. Um, you may want to go there and request a beta. 
<laughs> for that. So, uh, but I think Mac, Mac Whisper may be um, doing that. It's using the Whisper AI uh, protocol to make that actually happen. Um, Google also does a pretty good job. There's some Google APIs that will do it automatically um, that a lot of people use. So a lot of times when you see even live interpretation, there are certain language we, languages we can't get to. Um, so Mandarin, Hindi, other languages like that are not, there's no keyboard to do the telestration. You have to use AI if you want to do it live. And so typically what's what's done there is that we do, um, we might have a live trans, uh, transcriber or, or inter, um, that is, you know, on a, on a uh, keyboard, um, basically putting the, uh, the captions in, a live captioner. That goes into a system that then converts it to languages um, in real time uh, to make that happen. You're always going to, you always have to make sure that everybody knows it's not going to be what they thought it was supposed to be. Like there's definitely going to be words that don't mean what you think that they, they mean. Um, language is a very subjective thing and the computer can only get so far. Next question. Next one comes to us from Tony Mobley in Noonan, Georgia. I made the mistake of updating to the new Mac OS and now Audio Hijack does not work on my main computer. I'm getting an echo when Audio Hijack is on. There is no echo when Audio Hijack is off. Go, Jason. Oh, Tony, I hope you didn't upgrade to Sonoma. Um, if, if you upgraded to, to Mac OS Sonoma, the beta version, if you look on Rogue Amoeba's webpage, you're kind of hosed. I mean, they, they straight up say it's it's not supported yet. Yeah, you might have the, I don't know if you can, I'm sure you can back out of Sonoma. I'm so. sure you can, but it's not going to be pretty. Yeah, uh, but you probably have to reinstall. Next question. Yeah, that's okay. Jack Cannon, Phoenix, Arizona. Up next, ongoing saga of car-mounted Mac Mini ordered the U-Perfect 15.6-inch touchscreen monitor. What would you choose for a mouse and keyboard option to pair with that? Go, Jason. But I love this approach, and I think you're nuts for using a Mini in a car. As long as you're not driving, um, I would say that ThinkPad... Um, believe it or not, um, Lenovo ThinkPad makes a USB and Bluetooth keyboard. And um, remember that little like um, red thing in the middle that you could actually use <laughs> trying as to a use, mouse? You're trying to find a good word for that that we can use on the show. The nipple? Yeah. Yeah, I, yeah, that's yeah, what I so, called yeah, it. So, I'm yeah, sorry. So the, that's what I've always um, called it. Yeah, yeah. Pointing, it's, it's a... It's, it's a uh, eraser a head. <laughs> the eraser head, yeah. It, there is a... there is a, it's, it's literally like a pointing... Uh, uh, pointing button or something is what they're called, what they call it. So there's a technical term for it, but yeah, it's the little, it's the little, um, basically a joystick that is micro joystick. Yeah. It, it's pointing, uh, a track point is what they call it. Sorry. Track point. That's, that's the technical term for, uh, what's in the middle of there. Uh, and that one will be easy. Also think about a, um, you know, some kind of, uh, ball, you know, like I track ball is another one, but you don't want, you don't want as a mouse because the mouse will be too hard to, to, to make, to make work in a car, in my opinion. Go ahead, Chris. So Jack, uh, this is something Jack and I have been talking about for a year now. Um, I, as much as I don't like the Bill Davis trackpad, um, I would use a Bill Davis trackpad in the vehicle. And the reason for it is that although I'm not a fan of spaces in the Mac OS, when it comes to a vehicle-mounted Macintosh, I would probably use spaces. So I would use one for my, I would have one space for navigation. I have one space for Zoom. I would have one space for, you know, uh, watching movies. And yes, these are all things I do in my car. I apologize. Um, but uh, that is a very easy thing to do with one hand while you keep your eyes on the road or the screen. 
uh, swipe, swipe, swipe to, to between the spaces. And I know that the trackpad works quite well for that. Also, yeah, one of those things. Now, is that the Apple one, Alex, or is that a third party? This is the Apple one. And I will say if you're using it with a Mac, I would, I would use this one. Um, I've used a lot of different trackpads, and um, I use the Apple one because it has the best interface with the computer. Like, it's just the smoothest um, to work with the computer. And it yeah, is and nice. I that, think I think that you could mount that, like, on a flexi arm or or some sort of a arm next to your gear shift knob, yeah. and you... And and then I would uh, use that Loctite. Stupid, yeah, <laughs> I would use that Loctite with a with a Visa mount. <laughs> that's what that, well, that's, I've thought about it. I, it it's, so listen, it's I just head. ordered. There's a company called Bullet Point Mounting, and they have a whole mounting system for vehicles and phones and iPads and pairs mm-hmm. oh And uh, they have a twenty. They use the a twenty millimeter ball standard, unlike the uh, mag. Yeah, a lot of police use, departments use them. Yeah. There's another system that uses a 25 mil uh, mounting ball, but uh, they have a uh, suction cup mount. And you could, I mean, it's a little expensive, but you could mount that thing to that suction cup mount on the end of a 20 millimeter ball. And it would be super, uh, super, it's a, one of the really good suction cups that have the, you know, the this thing, you know, where you go, right, and now it's suctioned. Um, and it makes that noise. Uh but and then I would use the little keyboard when I absolutely positively have to enter text. But I think most of the time you won't have to enter text. And I know that in my vehicle I have a wider center console, and I know that that scratch and sniff pad would would mount. It's that that's where it's going to go. Solid. Um, I think RAM mount could probably do a really good that's job good. holding um, uh, holding that that trackpad that you were just showing Alex right but looking into the future a little bit I was just kind of my mind was just blown a little bit because if you think about the technology the eye tracking technology that's happening with the vision pro and then you put that into a car um, I just wonder what sorts of things might be on the horizon in that regard and then well I mean you probably want to to to, to, to do your automatic automatic driving as well so you're not running into things as you look for your there's actually your code in the vision headset that disables it when you go past 20 miles an hour it's cool he's bill. joking bill. good bill so you um so when you switch to trackpads not if but when uh eventually the thing that i figured out eventually is that about 60 percent of the power of the trackpad isn't actually in the ballistics or the how how you interact with it it's the multi-touch gestures they've built in once you myelinate those once they're part of your reactions this two single finger two finger taps double taps and things like that becomes part of your physical interaction with your computer you don't think about it anymore and it just means your hand stays in one position which i think is the best way to interact with something while you're driving is to keep take that hand put it where you need to and do everything without any kind of rolling something around i i'm all for it next question Next question comes from Stefan Fischer in Würzburg, Germany. Obspot Mini 2 arrived. Works fine so far. For the first time, I got a USB-C cable with an on-off switch attached to it. It's a little disappointing. The remote only works with the installed software, not standalone. Thoughts? I would never do that. <laughs> I would never get a USB with a, with a switch on it. That seems like a recipe for disaster. Uh, so, I, you know, when that switch isn't working anymore, it's going to be a real bummer. You know, so uh, I would I would not not have a switch in my USB thing. I guess that's what I would say. Uh, next question. 
Gordon Lake in Los Angeles, California. Would there be any bandwidth concerns for putting multiple Zoom bots from one location into a meeting? 100%. Uh, each, each Zoom bot needs 6.25 megabits per second. Um, so it just depends on how much bandwidth you have and how many bots. Uh, so I think that office hours right now uh, in our system, when it when the when the panel is full, I believe it's between two hundred two and three hundred megabit uh, megabits a second, is what we're pulling um, to do office hours uh, into the into the into the building right now. Go ahead, Chris. Six point two five. It is. Is, is that is that measured by Alex Lindsay standards or is that advertised from Zoom? Uh, measured. It's not advertised. It's it's me sitting there. I have a bandwidth counter. Six point right two five. Yeah. Th this is the importance of office hours. <laughs> Only here will you get that precision information. Thank you, I mean, it fluctuates a little bit. Like it, it does fluctuate a little bit and it and it is uh, What's but the high end. What are we talking? Six point two five is the high end. Right now, right now I'm running uh, as I talk to you right now, I'm running in the more in the vicinity of, um, yeah, it's a little bit less than that right now. It's it's probably five. I'm at about five. Uh, yeah, about five right now. Five point six. Five point six megs a second right now. And now it's going down low because I'm not moving as much. But if you but, move your hands real fast, will it increase? But it seems to tap at six point two, six point two five, somewhere in that range. It seems to where I've never seen it go over that per connection. Um, so, so I've, you know, so that's the, but it's, yeah, it's no, there's no, I don't think anyone's published anything. <laughs> maybe I'm, maybe I'm wrong. Matter? This is pure experience over the last three years of doing this every morning. I look up at my little bandwidth thing and that's what it, that's what it looks like. All right. We're now jumping into the second hour and we're so excited stage state. We're going to be talking about stage automation and it's one of my favorite things. So I do a lot of events and you can have, you can put LED walls back there. You can have cool lights. But when things on the stage start moving, now you've got something that's pretty interesting. I worked on one event where we had to have show something in it. It literally was most of the event, even though the event was an hour and a half long, almost all of our time was spent getting this one thing to come out of the stage. <laughs> so, so we, you know, and have it spin around at just the right speed and everything else. It's it's magical. So, um, so really glad we've got an incredible uh, crew here to talk about stage automation. So, if you've got questions about it, this is going to be the time to ask these questions. And I'm going to let Tlaloc kind of introduce everyone and give us a little bit more uh, background. Go ahead and take it away, Tlaloc. So um, stage automation is near and dear to my heart. Even though I'm a lighting designer, sometimes when, when I start seeing a scenic design coming in and there's a turntable or there's you know a lot of movement that wants to happen with the scenery, I immediately start asking, can we automate it? Because I find it to be clunky and problematic if things are not repeating itself and happening the same way every time. And um, and and as we've gotten more and more into automation, and we'll talk much more about this as we go, things are more, much more repeatable. We can get data out and we can work with things like projection design to follow, to follow along a piece of scenery as it moves. There's um, just a huge amount of, of uh, positives to this. Safety, you know, if you're going to be moving a big, heavy thing around on stage, it should happen the same time every time, same way every time. There should be a way to stop it. There should be all these safety uh, situations at, at hand. So today we get to talk about that in this context. And, you know, we do a lot of events and streaming here. We do, we have some theatrical people here, but we, we're going to talk about all of those things. And we have Mike Wade from Creative Connors, who um, is a, which is a company uh, that, um, <coughs> builds builds these things and builds these components in order to make this make this kind of work happen and dan uh uh 
sorry, I don't, <laughs> I don't, I don't know how to pronounce your last name, but Dan, uh, you, he's here and he, I think does a lot of work as well uh, with, with automations and will tell us what he, he knows. And Matt Parker's here and Matt Parker uh, works in, in theater. So we have a lot of uh, really great um, thoughts and angles on this topic and I'm super excited to get into it. Yeah, so I guess that um, and I guess that the, the first question is uh, how does this how does the, these conversations usually take off? Like for for the for our experts here, where does the conversation usually begin? When does someone call you and start talking about it? Does anyone have any? Is there a specific time? Or I guess the more important one is when do you wish that they would call you and talk to you about it? Because a lot of times we get into this thing where for live streaming, I know that what I get into is is uh, someone comes to me three weeks before the event and they're like, we would like you to live stream it. And I'm like, it would have been really good for us to talk about talk for the last six months while you're planning the event. Uh, it would have been a better show, you know. So uh, for you, when would you prefer, I guess, is, is a, better, a better question of uh, when would you guys prefer someone to call you and start talking to you about the idea? I'll take this one. This is Dan Lasowski. I'm at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Uh, and before that, I've worked at a number of companies who do uh, contracted work for major entertainment venues, both theater and amusement parks. So for me, the most successful integrations of automation, stage automation, come when the technical designers are brought in early into the design process. Um, oftentimes, will find that um, that either the solution that the designers came up with um, was is somewhat impractical, right? Defies physics, or um, is limited be from what they really wanted because they think they couldn't do it, right? It can't be achieved. So bringing in the technical team, the technical design team early into that design conversation about what the real intent of the automation is really does strengthen the overall product and does incorporate um, the expertise of the designers who are doing the visual work as well as the technicians to um, really put a great product on stage. And I think that that's the case almost every single time that we've had production on productions on our end is that we always tell people, even if you're not going to hire us or you don't even know if you're going to hire us yet or you don't know where it's going to go, just call us and brainstorm. You know, just let us tell you, oh, in that in that area, you may want to do this or watch out for this or it'd be really cool. And it also lets me sometimes for you know months ahead of time that seed of their idea of what they're trying to do has now been planted in my head and I'm sitting there walking around thinking, oh, I know what they could, you know, I know something that we could do that would be uh, kind of off the charts. So I'm are there certain things that, I guess for, for each of you, do you have a project that you were really proud of? Like one that you did and there was something really cool. What, what did you, what was it and what, what was really cool about it when you put it together? I don't know if anyone wants to start here. I'm going to throw it. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead, Matt. Um, I've got uh, some footage of some, uh, some things we've done. So this first one, this is uh, a revolve for a, a Hero the Musical that we did a few years ago. And these are the actors rehearsing on the revolve in the scene shop and getting a chance to figure out how the blocking and you know, works with the show. The Revolve has the cutaway of a house, the backyard that you can see here, and then I've got a shot of it in the show after this. And so as he's doing the opening song, 
the the sets revolving and then he's moving um across the stage so the you know maintaining where the audience can see him crosses into the comic book shop and then the set will uh stop here and so this is all on a revolve driven by a motor and so here it is within the show with lighting in context and the the revolve uh there's a deck on top of the stage floor so that you don't see the lip right there of where the uh where the revolve is uh, so from the audience, it just looks like a single surface. And then throughout the show, you know, they transition between scenes. And by having the motion being able to do it like this, you're saving the time from having to go to a blank stage, play music for two minutes while they shift the scenery. And this is another show called Beatsville that opens up out um out front of the cafe revolves around and then reveals the the set with the band playing in the center this is a, a slip stage so this is essentially uh, about a four foot wide platform that's the width of the entire stage that uh unfortunately is quite dark in this shot but um We've got a motor that that pulls the yep. that pulls the um, the set and, from side to side, and we're able to set. And, and is there and, and and what kind of is the motor a servo stepper? What 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 type of motor are you using there? So the the turntable is moved with a, a motor that that drives a a, a small car tire that. So here's a so here's a plan view of the turntable, and then here is the motor, and then it's got a tire that pushes up against the edge of the the rotating platform. There's a center pivot point that holds it in place, and then a very if you've got a really heavy thing, a uh, piece of scenery, what's good to have are tires on, on the other side of the platform that give resistance to keep the center pivot um and is that platform sitting on bearings or lots of lots of wheels what's so the there, there there are this uh this particular one was fixed casters mm -hmm. uh because if you if you put swivel casters which i've had to do on other revolves just because they need to to strike you need the there needs to be a little bit of slop in the system for the the tires to uh, swivel as you change directions. Right, right. Um, and then next to the motor, there's a a small uh, wheel that rests up against it that feeds back to the motion control computer to let it know that the revolve is actually moving. Right. And how? how what's what kind of precision? Uh, you know, d does this have like, are you within a couple degrees when you get from one place to the next, or are you w within a degree? I mean, with a tire and those types of things, I'm not. How much slop is there? I yeah, if we could have Mike jump in on that. Yeah, go ahead, Mike. Um. Yeah. Well, you know, um, 
the the amount of slop kind of really in my experience comes around to not the drive tire but how smooth and accurate that edge is that the that that dancer wheel encoder is taking that position from you know the Got smoother it. and the cleaner that edge is the more realistic it is that we're going to be able to land at a much tighter a much tighter tolerance at our you know desired position absolutely um uh, Dan, do you have any uh, anything that you that pops to your head as far as uh, projects you worked on that were particularly interesting? Yeah, I did a lot of cool projects when I was with Fisher Technical Services, but the ones that I think I would talk about now um, was a project I did uh, probably five years ago now here at the university, in which we staged a production of Alice um, Alice's Adventures in Wonderland based on the book in which we had a single actor driving the the show so using multiple microsoft connect sensors we had this actor um, both driving the projection system based on their movements and and location on the stage as well as the stage automation equipment uh in the in the system so in the stage automation system, we had a treadmill um, that when activated, when like Alice was chasing the rabbit in the initial scene, it would keep her centered on stage, depending um, regardless of what speed she was going. Um, so she could be walking, she was jogging, it it monitored her position and her body position, right? What, so if she's leaning a little bit forward, it is indicating in the system that she's going faster, right? So when we walk, we're more upright. And if we're trying to jog, we're actually leaning forward, it would monitor the difference in your shoulder spine uh, versus your hip spine base. And it would kind of compensate for that in the system. Uh, it also had a performer flying aspect in which the uh, when Alice was tumbling down the rabbit hole, she was in control of her position and her dynamic movement as she fell through the hole with based on her hand position. So if she put her hands, um, if she put her hands up, she would actually raise up. If she kept them uh, stationary, she would stay where she is and she put them down. She would kind of decel, I mean, uh, go down within the performance window of it all. And then uh, that also had to track when she was walking on stage. So we had a dynamic slack line detection system that the performer flying hoist uh, would be driven would be would allow her to kind of move around the stage but without having the huge dangle that you would have um if you're just kind of having a single point performer flying hoist um in the system so a lot of this required some heavy duty functional safety that's what my specialty is i'm i i develop and research functional safety systems specifically in dynamic automation um in dynamic automation when we talk about it in stage automation is when the set point is is um delivered by an external source whether that be in this case multiple microsoft connect sensors or um whether that be a soundboard or a lighting board right so how do we continue to make our system safe um with these external set points which for years was considered a, a huge automation no-no right like when i went through school uh the idea of controlling any stage automation with DMX, um, which is a lighting protocol, was was one of the big no, you never do that kind of things. Um, and now with the advances that they, we've had in functional safety 
that is very possible to do safely. So uh, that project uh, was was just amazing to kind of work on um, from the creative side of it to the end product. So. Absolutely. I know when I'd done a lot with motion control cameras and there's lots of big tape that goes around where we're, where we're doing action of like, do not step inside that line. Like, you know, right. like it's going to move very fast and, uh, and we, we're not going to be able to adjust for it. So you need to stay out of this, out of the you know, safety becomes, uh, it, sometimes half of the show is just for figuring out what we can and can't do, uh, mm-hmm. to, to make that happen. Mike, do you have anything that, that jumps, that, that jumps out for you that of, of things that you worked on? Um, you know, I think the, uh, I think kind of the, like seeing that cool, um, seeing that cool aha moment, especially in a live event where, you know, you see the entire, the entire space transform just based on a few things that are moving around. And it could, it could be like Matt said, a turntable, right? That's a pretty awesome trick. But as soon as you add in a couple of flying pieces or a couple tracking pieces, maybe you're even throwing in a tracking piece that spins as it goes around. And so you come from, you know, like the outside of the house and you end up spinning pieces around and sliding in new parts and flying in bits and pieces to go into this entire internal view of whatever that external was. Um there was a really great production uh, that involved a house and a turtle and a couple pallets that the Huntington did quite a few years ago now that um, that I wasn't directly involved in, but that was that moment almost every night uh, got applause from got applause from the audience as they saw this transformation happen. Absolutely, Tlaloc. So for me, um, one of the one of the my favorite moments with a turntable actually from creative connors was here at brevard music center and we did um we had a essentially like a viaduct that on top of the turntable with this big giant tree it was for midsummer night's dream and the viaduct um would have to come back to points where where the actors could walk onto it so the accuracy was super important it had to stop at the right point there there couldn't be any gaps and it couldn't have anybody walking off of things of course stage lighting doesn't mean that that it's good visibility for the actors. It means it's good visibility for the audience. So we have to we have to really really have these accuracies in there. And and I remember from from being part of that project that Creative Connors controls had the ability to think about what kind of slip rate a particular um, uh, a particular methodology has and sort of look at that and test it. Uh, two known points and then add that back into the system so that things could really, really stay uh, very, very accurate. And, and I it just have a very fun, fun memory of that. We have a lot of questions stacking up, so we're going to go ahead and jump into them. Let's go to the first question. Our first one actually comes from Tlaloc here in the panel. A question for Michael. How and where have you seen stage automation leave the theatrical realm and entered events, television, or other types of uses? Uh, yeah, go ahead, Michael. Um, I mean, I think almost every day, right? The, um, there is stage automation in multiple TV studios and in almost every theme park and in many corporate events, you know, we want flashy, right? If it's, you know, um, I think Alex, you mentioned before, right? You know, put an LED panel at the back of the house. 
well, at the back of the stage. But what's even cooler is when that LED panel breaks open and your CEO comes through the middle and then it closes behind them. Um, so I think that there's, um, you know, I, I mean, I think there's no, there's really no limit to where stage automation can kind of creep into other industries that are adjacent um, or that even the theater world is adjacent to and be successful. Absolutely. And next question. James Fossilian is coming to us from Minneapolis, Minnesota. Have you experienced software control software being retired? And if so, how did you deal with it no longer being available? Go ahead, Matt. I've got an install that it's actually dark right now, but has been running for like 10 years that was originally programmed with Stage Reachers' SFX as the main show controller that would uh, talk to Light Factory for controlling uh, lasers, beacons, um, CO2 cannons, air cannons, and then uh, magnetic relays for triggering drop boxes in uh, kind of a, a laser tag sort of uh, arena. And the show had gotten so complicated that sending the system would lock up if you ran it too many times in a row without rebooting the computer. And so <laughs> I eventually uh, converted the system to a Gilderfluke box. And Gilderfluke is like one of the companies that kind of spun out of Disney Imagineering. And think of them as kind of um, like show control Arduino boxes. So I used a show, a show control box about the size of a chalkboard eraser. And it's able to output stereo sound. Uh, it'll control servos. It'll send DMX. And so I captured the DMX that we had from the old system into their program called PC Max that only runs on a PC, oddly enough. But, uh, and what's, you could, that's meant for, uh, it's portable, so you can put it in a small thing. So you could build like a prop or something that would run off of this, you know, uh, like Chuck E. Cheese, the animation there, because you can control servos and build your animation on a timeline. Uh, no, absolutely. Um, and, and the, I guess the, the question is, is that, is at some point, I mean, are, are there things that you still use that they haven't made for a long time? I guess that's a question for, like, is that, is it something that, that you still, like, I know that we have a, there's a motion control camera. We were talking about this the other day. There's a motion control camera that we use uh, called a Cooper system. And it's still, I think it still runs on floppies. Like we still load the the stuff into it on floppies and the floppy that we use is like really dark. It's everyone's dirty hands. <laughs> and it's just like, it's very gross, but, it, but, it, but, it, but it, we move the, we, but we're, what's funny is we're using Maya and motion builder and all kinds of other things to design the the moves, but then they get brought into this, the system because it's still rock solid and it still works after 30 years. And, and so it's, it's one of those things like it, it but it, everyone's careful with it because I don't think that the, even the parts are available again. Yeah, oh, so oh, go, go ahead. Yeah, so parts that um I mean if you've got something that just like does one thing, you know, then you know, it doesn't right. matter that it's running on DOS and you don't, you know, as long as you've got, you know, uh hardware that'll reliably run it, then you know, and that's the only option, then that's what you've got. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
And, and a quick reminder for our panelists, um, because we have a multiple panelists there, definitely take a look at the back end. You can raise your hand so we know what, whether you want to answer any of those given questions there. Go ahead, Tlaloc. Yeah, I think, I mean, at the end of the day, this is these are mechanical things that we're needing to actuate. <laughs> so um, there are there are certain things where you are actuating a you're actuating a speed controller, or you're actuating you know a valve in an, in pneumatics, or you're actuating a valve in in hydraulics, and um, and so there may be a switch you know that is being used to do that. That and and depending on what it is you're doing. The thing that 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 starts to get more complicated is when you're combining points of or access. Uh, what are they called? Access points that essentially say, okay, uh, or, or channels of direction. Like we're moving this way, we're rotating this way, and you're combining those, and you have to start to have a much more contr- uh, complicated control system. Right. And when does that happen? And how is it queued? And so, um, uh, the more the more complication you have, sort of the harder it would be to shift from a control system to another control system. But still, it's all just switches. So you can you can do it. You just have to add half the time. Good, Matt. Or, I'm sorry, Mike. Um, just to bump in on this a little, you know, I think we've run into it, and I imagine a whole bunch of other people have too, where there's like um, permanently installed systems in, you know, in a theater, line sets or curtains or whatever. Um, that um, that you know our control systems that were bespoke for that one space um, software that was also bespoke for that one installation and um, you know and 15 years ago the people who designed that system and that software uh, retired and so you know as even um, so you can run into some pretty significant challenges, especially if there's a failure, even if it's just a relay or fuse, um, you know, just trying to get that repaired. And and if you do, if the institutional knowledge has been lost, it can be, it can be a real heartache to get from everything was fine to nothing is working to everything's back fine again. It's. It's funny, I, uh, we were having this discussion about a year ago with a production that I was working on where we were talking about the fact that they like the, the person I was working with only wanted to work with people who are experts. And I'm like, the problem is working with people that are only experts is that if they leave, they're the only ones that knew how to work it. You know, having assistance around <laughs> is spreading out the knowledge as well. <laughs> like, and, and having them delegate that out means that when they, you know, when they move on to the next thing, you have somebody else that at least knows which way is up, you know, um, you know with that. And, and I think that that's a, a key factor I know in production that we run into as well. Uh, next question. Next one comes again from Tolico Lopez Waterman in Brevard, North Carolina. Is all stage automation computer controlled? All right, go ahead, Matt. So um, I've got uh, something we use for a, a trapdoor lift, and it's an, essentially an industrial controller that uh, uh, Show Motion uh, makes that controls. Um, this is a uh, an elevator for a trapdoor center stage. And so basically there's, I haven't actually programmed this, but there you, you can set trims. Um, and then there's two, two things that it's controlling here. There is the sunroof, which are these two panels that they will drop down a couple inches and then slide to the side. 
and that that makes a hole in the floor and then this platform here is able to move up into the opening on the stage and we can have actors write up pieces of uh of scenery or, or props or such and it's it's not a pc computer but but it's um are there are there certain types of processors that are are popular so fpga versus uh, PCs or Raspberry Pis or Arduino, are there any that, that that you see a lot a lot of in automation? Um, we we tend to work with uh, with Showmotion for the bespoke stuff, you know, for right. our turntables and and yeah. for that. Uh, the other stuff that I've done, I'll you know, depending on what the project is and what I need to control, you know. Predominantly coming from sound show, show control, SFX right. and QLab are my main focus. But uh, you know, Gilder Fluke is, is something that is a you know, rock solid you know uh, piece of hardware that you know I, I um, that I'll, I've set up for for uh, right. in installs. Absolutely, Dan. Yeah. Uh, so going back to your question, question Alex, I think the the Equipment that is most commonly used is either uh, an FPA, FPGA or, or an ASUS with, um, for those companies that are making their custom boards, um, the majority of, uh, you know, high, regional theaters or that do their own are more likely using something like a programmable logic controller, whether that is um, made by Alan Bradley. Um, a lot of them, um, in a lot of my experience, uses Beckoff automation systems, which um, technically use a, uh, can be run by any computer, but also have their own head modules that allow that to happen. Um, so what the benefit of those type of systems is you don't have to develop the lower end um, programming software to make it happen. They have programming software that is used in factories, right? That the, the, these are components that are used in automation systems in the industrial industry and we have incorporated them into theater um but going back to is all stage automation computer controlled i think my answer would be no and in many ways it shouldn't all be the the answer being that the simplest solution is usually the best solution to make things happen so if you don't have to have um for precision and accuracy and repeatability these travelers being automated then have somebody push them on stage right i think the the reliability of it all um comes into play and the cost comes into play uh right the automation companies that i work with want to automate everything right um but in reality the the simplest solution is often the best solution um and yeah. um that that comes into play but even push button systems are common right i think somebody mentioned um right you don't need to you can have a, an electrical push button going to a, a valve that opens, um, that runs some pneumatic system uh, that isn't computer controlled. That that is a perfect, a viable solution for a lot of automation projects. Next question, Douglas Carmichael, back with this one. What experiences have you had with industrial automation professionals adjusting to the production world, Falk? Well, I mean, I don't know if they adjusted well um, because we had um, uh, some Siemens equipment coming in to uh, be utilized for some some overhead uh, uh, line sets moving in and out, and they 
they built, and I don't know if it was the consultant or if it was Siemens, but they built this incredibly complicated safety system that was so, so complex and had to have everything be so perfect that the only way to move anything was to turn the safety system off. And so, um, uh, which is no safety system at all. And so I think where that, where you, where you run into problems with industrial, uh, uh, companies trying to do this kind of work is thinking about how it is actually used in theater and what what people have to do to make it happen and what things happen uh, day to day in order to get the job done. Yeah, go ahead, Mike. Um, yeah, just a, I mean, just to kind of tail onto that, um, you know, the industrial automation is generally set up once. And it's going to do the same thing, right? We're going to fill every bo- every one of those bottles with barbecue sauce or, you know, make that lighting fixture. And in the entertainment world, in the theater world, we may have a line set that is, yes, always going to go up and down, but there are going to be different things attached to that line set and other factors that are going to come into play about changing the parameters, what it can do and cannot do in a given path. So that industrial, like having that kind of being able to distance yourself from the idea that you have an assembly line and there is a yellow line on the floor and nobody goes past that yellow line to the stage where there is no yellow line. Everybody is going to be walking around everywhere. Yeah, I think that one of the through lines for my career working from all the different areas that I've worked in is that how important that interface is, what you're talking about of... Am I going to build this and only never change it? And how powerful it is when you can say, I can change anything, you know, relatively often. You know, maybe it's not immediate, but I can sit there with an iPad or something else and go, oh, do you want it over here? Do you want it over there? Do you want this light up here? And when people have that fluidity, um, they're, you know, they're, they ha- you know, you end up with a better show, right? I mean, because it's, you're, you're able to get to the solution faster. There's a lot of things we don't do because we just don't have the interface for it. Like we don't have the way to, to make that adjustment. Uh, next question. Kyle Hammond in Chicago, Illinois. Up next, what are the benefits to having something digitally and automated versus an analog and or human-driven action? And he notes tokens, stagehands, and so forth. Or is there a use case for hybrids? Go ahead, Dan. Yeah, the benefits of digitally automated systems, like we were highlighted earlier, is the repeatability of it, right? If you're trying to match light cues or sound cues or video cues with automation or of particular piece of scenery being at a particular place at a particular time, the automated systems have a lot more functionality um, to do that or much more repeatable and reliable to do that. Uh, there are also right limitations into, into what you can do with weight and size. Uh, the automated systems can move things that are heavier faster um, than you can with most human-driven systems and those. Um, Right. So there is a, a safety element involved in kind of having the stage automation do those things. And I guess the last question, is there a use case for hybrids? And in, in my experience, you all there always wants to be a hybrid solution, right? You always want to have a way to move that equipment if the digital or automation system fails off of the stage, right? Whether that is a wagon that is being driven on and off stage, having some way to disengage the mechanical system, the electromechanical system from the wagon, such that you can move the wagon off stage um, in in the case that it does fail, uh, 
is just good practice. What and right that also comes into play when you're working with flying performers. There needs to be a way for you to get those flying performers out of the air. They can only be in the air for so long in a safety uh, in a performer flying harness before they will have. Um, uh, I can't remember the exact words, but there's a a shock that happens if you stay in a harness for too long. So there needs to be a safety plan for that. Most of those safety plans are a hybrid case in which you are bringing you're you're manually um, lowering that person. Sometimes it is right fluttering the brakes well, with a backup system. But there's lots of ways to do that. And in some way, would you say that there that, that there's also beyond safety and reliability, there's also being able to dance with the performance itself. So having people doing it by hand, sometimes, is, you know, the automated kind of limits you to a point where you, you can have people off stage that are reacting to things that they're that they're seeing Would that is that does that come into play as well? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, if the performance itself is dynamic and you're not having it right where it, where it is not the same every time, automation may not be the right way to go, right? Because you yeah. want to have it be a little bit more fluid um, as you go through that process. Yeah, Coach Lollick. I wanted to point out that automation can not be electrical. You know, you can actually automate scenery by by manual manual actuation with with winch winches and drums that get cranked and and they sometimes you'd think that that would have a lot of feedback and if things something was going wrong that they would um then uh know it with the feedback back to the trump to the drum but as it turns out uh, there was one experience that i know about where um there was a a, a winch drum that was pulling a wagon and uh, a foot got in the way of it. And the guy was like, well, why isn't this going? And he just cranked it three or four times trying to get it to the right position. But that was a foot. So this is the kind of things that we have to think about when it comes to safety. And how do we make sure that there's always a vis- there's always visuals on stage and there's always eyeballs on stage and there's there's ways to stop things, whether it be by stopping somebody from cranking or by stopping the system. Um, and safety is paramount. Next question. Craig McFarlane in Boston, Massachusetts. Up next, is there an overlap between higher-end consumer and or home automation and industrial operation uh, automation, especially for smaller budgets? I think that the, the biggest problem with a lot of those right now is in, in homes is it barely works. So I think that the problem is, is that you, uh, you know, trying to put it into performance, uh, you know, I, I use, we talk about it. I have automation in my, in my studio, but I wouldn't use it in a show, uh, you know, because it's, you know, I, I feel like it, I'm, I'm just happy when it turns on and off, let alone do it at precision, you know, predictably, uh, go ahead, Mike. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, I think Alex, I was just about to kind of get into that same thing, right? You know, if we're trying to, it's that reliability and Safety. the confidence of it. And I think also tied in um, with the amount of time to create all of those bits and pieces, right? The controllers and putting the controllers together, whether it's a an Arduino or if it's something more advanced like a Beckoff, um, or if it's somewhere in the middle, like the pretty amazing click PLCs from Automation Direct. Um, there's, you know, I think you're you're kind of trying to balance all of the bits to how do I accomplish the task that I'm trying to get to, which is in the end, maybe that curtain opening and closing. And how can we do that in the time and the money that we've got? Absolutely. Next question. James Fossley is back from Minneapolis. Do cues get fired by the soundboard, the lightboard, or someone on stage? Go ahead, Matt. The ever popular, it depends. <laughs> that's so, our favorite term here, so it's good. 
the normally the uh, most of the automation, like the turntables, slip stages, the trapdoor, that's uh, run by a, a automation uh, crew member on stage operating the the equipment. And then speaking to safety, there's an e-stop button or multiple ones in places where ASM has view of the stage and can see there's an issue. With the trap doors, we have overhead cameras. Um, so you can see if someone's standing on the trap door, if there's an issue, and we use infrared cameras. Um, but there are like electrical things that'll get tr triggered by the light board. So if there's something that's just triggering a solenoid to release a drop you know that'll get programmed into the light board with an inhibitive fader set up as a safety so when you're doing light check and you're stepping through the lights you don't accidentally trigger that and have the piece of scenery fall on you always good i go ahead mike um, I think there's I think there's a path in there where, you know, if we were trying to incorporate and tightly, tightly incorporate multiple elements together, then we have to have some way to execute cues at the same time, right? From a single go button. And that could be show control from some master show control, or it could be taken from, you know, from one of the one of the devices in there. I think if you're driving some physical motion on stage right if the if the automation system is running some real thing um that um that we have to have an operator who is ready to be there and ideally we're gonna have that operator have some levels of safety like holding a hold to run button um to make sure that everything is actually in the right state and safe to go um and continuing on to that you know uh, Matt, as you said, right, e-stops throughout the building, right? It's not an automation system if there isn't an e-stop. So we need to be able to control all of those bits and pieces to make that happen, right? Hey, go ahead, Dan. Sorry. Uh, I think the answer to that question, a follow-up with Mike, is that yes, there is in general a person with, you know, at least a hold-to-run button in these systems. I'm finding that there's a larger desire in the industry to have uh, these other systems, whether it's the soundboard or the light board um, or an ex any other external set point to drive stage automation. Um, and that's where I was remember I was talking about dynamic automation, where the set point is set not by the system pre-programmed in. It is fluid and can change based on the input from the other system. So for instance, the chandelier in vegas and i can't remember the name of the club omni maybe uh where the chandeliers lights and motion are all driven by the dj's control um board right they are they are what the dj is doing on the on their mixer um both tempo and, and sound and all of that is actually feeding into and driving the stage automation system um in a way that isn't the same any night, right? It's giant. It is different every time somebody goes up to that console. And these type of applications um, in stage automation um, are those cases where I find very exciting and kind of where the industry can go from here, um, but do require a higher end uh, understanding of functional safety beyond an emergency stop, right? Emergency stops are great. Um, and are a necessity in most in any stage automation system but 
for a lot of things where you're not where you don't have as close of close containment on the parameters of where it will be what you're telling it to do uh, you're going to need other things that limit the speed safely limit the the direction limit the acceleration um specifically if you're dealing with phone performers uh to to a, a safe level um based on industry standards next question David Brady in New York City is this one. With all due respect to stage automation in theaters, what are the constraints and concerns of taking a show on the road a la Ramstein or Peter Gabriel's stage shows? Go ahead, Tlaloc. More trucks. <laughs> 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 I think I think what, what you do is you build you build your uh you build your your show to to fit into as many trucks as you can afford in order so that you don't have to rely on your, the venue that you're going to, to provide anything, right? You need, you need this to sort of come with you and then you need to have your technicians come with you. I know um, a friend of mine is, is the automation technician on, on one of the five or six Hamilton tours. And <clears throat> I think one of the, one of the trucks is the automation truck. It just comes with all of their stuff and all of their tools and their desks and their things that they need to need to have to work with. They sit down, they drop in and, you know, it also has to be advanced. So if, um, if the Peter Gabriel tour is going to a show, there are a team of people who are looking at power, who are looking at structure, who are looking, making sure that you're not going to be overloading, um, um, the, the actual building and things are not going to fall because you've put a lot more weight on it than it's used to. Um, uh, and this, this, this sort of thing does happen. You know, the, the automation at the Met for a show about five or six years back, they had to rebuild the building in order to make it, to, to, to have it, have it sustain the kind of weight that was getting put on there for, for the sake of, of theatrical automation. So just advance, 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 have enough trucks and have all your equipment with Good, Mike. Yeah, I mean, advanced, but you know, more trucks also means more stuff, right? It's not you're not just like walking in with some people. You're walking in with maybe you're touring with two complete show decks or two complete overhead truss structures, so that that advance is is piggybacking on each other as it's running around. So you're you know performing one night and you're setting up in another city for the you know two or three nights ahead of you i was talking talking to a lighting designer does some pretty big shows and he was talking he was showing me this really great lighting rig and he goes and it all fits into one truck <laughs> like it was like it was like the way it was designed was you know it's eight feet wide you know i think it was eight feet wide or seven and a half feet wide whatever it is, but it all fits all this whole lighting thing that goes across the top all fits into one truck and he and i realized like how much of that conversation is part of the design is not just being able to do it but being able to ship it yeah. uh, next question Kyle Hammond is back with uh, us from Chicago. What is the tool you wish you could snap your fingers and have to support a project you're currently working on? Go ahead, Tlaloc. Um, really affordable within the budget that I'm working on, but uh, small winches that would allow us to uh, move up and down some chandeliers that we have in the show. Because right now what we, we're in a space where we have to build a full proscenium out of truss. We don't have a line set system and it would be great to just pull those chandeliers in and out and, and not have them have to be there as a unit set for the entire show. Um, definitely want to have. Next question. 
Chadwick Engelman in West Carrollton, looks like. Why are the automation companies not allowing end users to mix and match equipment for specific needs? There are several theaters with two completely separate automation systems, one to control the scenery automation and one to control the line set winch. Go ahead, Dan. Yeah, I mean, this is uh, a problem that, that I've seen as well. The reason that they don't do it is that it... Um, each of these systems runs on its own proprietary internal software package, right? Whether it is Stage Tech or ZFX or uh, Creative Connors, um, they're they're all running their own internal software, which has its own differences in how it handles parameters like velocity and and acceleration, and uh, that there is not a set protocol to communicate across these systems yet. Um, we have been working on. Uh, moving that needle along uh, slowly in the ESTA uh, technical standards program, which I'll plug here is the standards are all free for our industry. Uh, and they the technical standards program does standards both with stage automation, but as well with stage lighting um, and power. The There's a movement to kind of to start the conversations in that direction, the the big questions deal with safety, right? If you're if you're having two different systems controlling the uh, set point of a, a a motion system, right? The communication between them, uh, who is handling the safety interaction between them? Is one system stopping both, or can either system stop? And then how do you come back out of that? Um, so it's not impossible, right? There are ways to get around it. It's just not. Uh, when these systems are put into place, um, historically, they haven't been that hasn't been a consideration in the in the process um, to kind of make that possibility happen. Yeah, go ahead, Mike. Um, just a tag on there, uh, especially on like the line sets and the permanently installed equipment. That's all, you know, these are co- two completely divorced ideas about how to approach putting control systems in, right? Like, um, you know, theater consultants and architects are the ones specifying the line sets and the control point and the control system um, with no real approach or uh, with no real uh, approach to what the production is going to need. You know, those, the parameters that they're designing to don't necessarily, they are there to support the productions, but they don't necessarily, they aren't there to, go hand in hand with those productions. And I think that's why we end up with two completely different systems to control these, you know, permanently installed pieces of equipment and then that production automation. Go ahead, uh, Tlaloc. Yeah, I think <clears throat> that brings up for me, uh, you know, um, one of your one of your folks there at Creative Connors, Mike, um, is Brian Fosca, who worked for many, many years at, um, at uh, Seattle, the Seattle Repertory Theater. And I know that they had a bunch of stuff, you know, motors and, and, um, uh, linear actuators and all that as sort of part of their inventory that they can put together for any particular need over the course of many designs. And so that's what I hope for, for the industry as a, as a lighting designer, as a, as a theatrical designer is, can I go into a regional theater or an opera that has these building blocks to do something that that is an idea that cut that is built in my head <laughs> so it so it's not a it's not a giant lift 
for me to say, I would really love it if this wall moved from stage left to stage right over the course of this time. But I don't know if we can do that. I don't know if we have the people. I don't know if we have the stuff. And 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 the theater to say, well, yeah, we have the stuff. And and here's how it could happen. And and uh, let's do it. You know. So that's what I hope for is to is for those theaters to have those building blocks so that we can. And those building blocks are often from disparate companies. You know, if the theater can work together to build and have and work with these things, <clears throat> um, it's a lot. It's a lot more likely for us to do some amazing things in those spaces. You go with Dan. Yeah, I just want to take on that. I think that, and that comes down to the the system that was just being discussed at the early stages. That being part of the the parameters, right? When you put out the spec, I I need our stage automation system to be able to add in other things along the way, right? Oftentimes, when you're when a company is putting in a line set array um, for a theater, right? They're using a very simple touch tone, like touch interface. Or regardless of the interface, they're not considering can this system also control these other things, right? When you're putting a spec together for a building or when you're redoing the automation system in a space, considering and talking about how are we going to be able to move this along um, is and, and have these other pieces incorporated is an important part of it. Next question. Tlaloc uh, from Brevard, North Carolina, who is passed this in at four o'clock this morning. How do you adjust for slippage when dealing with a tire-driven turntable? Go ahead, Matt. The turntable system we've got has an encoder wheel that sit next uh, that r- rides um, along the surface of the turntable, and so it can provide feedback to the motion control computer that okay. The tire's moving, but the set's not moving. Right. Do you, do you ever have multiple encoders to just to cross-check them? The system we've got um, only has, uh, it was only set up with a singular in, mm-hmm. encoder the way we've configured it. Right, go ahead, go Mike. Um, yeah, I think, you know, Matt, uh, you know, that dancer wheel encoder, as long as it's not actually taking that as long as you're not taking the position from that drive wheel, it's not a friction drive. You're guaranteed to have some slippage, no matter how it goes, no matter how good it is. There's going to be some, um, and that can, you know, that can pretty quickly compound and get you to not be aligned and not be where you're at. Um, you can also pull that position from the center if you've got a big enough center pivot and you've got maybe a big gear in there. Um, to reduce and eliminate any concern about slipping or any issues with the drive surface or the drive edge where you're reading that position from. Next question. Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. What is the weight limit of the circular stages that Matt does? Go ahead, Matt. So I I'm, uh, haven't dealt with the construction on it, but we there's a lot of weight that's on there. So you've got... You know, up to 20 cast members on the stage walls rotating, plus essentially two buildings um, and uh, on on the hero set. And then on Beatsville, same thing. You've, you've got 20 people. You've, you've got a um, you've got a drum kit. You've got the scenery. You've got dimmers underneath the floor. And so it's heavy duty casters and uh that's why I was I was bringing up the um, having 
tires at the opposite end of the drive tire because to to create the amount of friction to get the traction, the extra weight um, will like cause you know, slippage. Right, and and there's really it's just a matter. It's a function of with any of these turntables. It's a function of just how you know how you structure it. But it, it theoretically, I mean, I've seen turntables that turn whole tractor trailer trucks, you know, like that are that are that are there. So you can build them right to. It's just a matter of specking because a lot of these you're building pretty much to spec, right? You're not. Yeah. It's not like you're going out and buying something. You're you're building it based on the requirements for the show. Yeah. Every every turntable um, is is a different size. So yeah. we had. Uh, one this season that was a smaller diameter and the musicals we set up and for for the month two months that it's up and it sits there when we're in season doing straight plays we do rotating reps so we'll have one show in the afternoon other show in the evening so this season we were setting up and striking the turntable you know for every performance that it, uh that it used that uh, bit of scenery good mike um, you know, I think the the weight limit on the on a on a revolving stage is, I mean, it's like it is it is dependent on so many factors, right? I mean, Matt mentioned, you know, heavy duty casters, right? Casters underneath that that platform is rolling on will dramatically affect the performance of that stage, right? And you know, if the casters are too soft, you'll end up not being able to spin it. If they're swivel casters, you may not be able to actually change direction. Um, you know, and kind of depends on also the horsepower of the motor that's there, the diameter of the turntable, the diameter of the drive wheel. And, you know, as a Matt, I don't know if you've ever bumped into this, but we have just started adding extra, extra motors to the outside of the turntable as we get larger diameter and bigger uh, and heavier loads on there in order to get it to spin and to make sure that we're keeping that performance correct and good for everybody. Next question. Marty Atias in Maryland. Um, for Matt, how does the system detect Alice's hand gestures in the in example you gave earlier? Is there any similarity to musician Imogen Heap's MIDI controller gloves? Go ahead, Dan. Yeah, I took this one because it's based on Alice. So I was assuming it was for me instead of Matt. Um, so the Alice system uses the Microsoft Connect sensors. So we use the ones for Windows, um, but there are also the ones for the Xbox system. Uh, they don't necessarily, um, they allow the performer to move as they would normally do. Since it's a camera, you know, using depth of field, uh, the motion of the performer isn't limited by the glove. So they can be gloveless. Um, so it isn't like the MIDI controller gloves that are here, um, which would require some feedback because the intention is to have the actor appear as much in costume as they would normally. The system uses um, joint tracking and hand closures to do all of the movements. So it, it tracks, um, I, I can't, I can't remember the exact number now, but 37 different points of the human body. Um, and it transmits all of that data to the to the main system um, in distances of millimeters in both the X, Y, and Z axis off of the, that. So it, it uses the camera data rather than uh, any kind of physical mechanical um, sensor. Next question. 
Roscoe Jones in Madison, Indiana. If moving hundreds or thousands of pounds of scenery, props, and people means forces that can injure or kill, what might be some tips for actors to help them decide if it's a safe set? Go ahead, Swallow. There's oftentimes at the beginning of a technical rehearsal period, a, a set walkthrough. And you're going to have a, um, you're going to have essentially a meeting with the automation uh, technicians with the technical director, with the stage manager. And you, you want to just pay a lot of attention in those moments and sort of walk through with them and kind of understand how it all works and get an overview of it. Um, and, and if there's anything that, that feels to you like it might not be quite right, right. Ask, ask and have that conversation because, you know, you might, you might be, you might be wrong and you might be right. And so be act, be active and and be proactive in those meetings and make sure that those meetings are happening. If you have a, sh- a show with automation, request and require that meeting. Uh, next question. Slalik Lopez-Waterman, Brevard, Brevard, what is the Creative Connors product lineup and philosophy? Go ahead, Mike. Um, well, I think our philosophy is to to start there. Our philosophy is to make automation accessible to as many people as possible. And so we are providing building blocks for making these effects happen in the, in your theater, whether it's a deck winch or a curtain track or some hoist of some kind or a stage lift. All those pieces kind of come together in a plug-and-play setup. So the machines, the controllers, the e-stop system and the control software. And our hope there is that we can also, you know, make, again, kind of with the accessibility, make your show, you know, make your show happen the way you want it to, whether it's running just the automation or integrating and incorporating with sound and lights to create these, you know, hopefully spectacular moments. Mike, Dan, Matt, Flalock, thank you so much for your time. Like, it's just a great hour. Uh, I know I've, I've about <laughs> multiplied my knowledge of how automation works, which is still very small by about a hundred. So, uh, so, so thank you. Uh, thank you so much for your time. Hopefully we'll get to maybe get you guys to come back sometime after we've absorbed some of it and seen some more of it uh, in the real world. So thank you again for, for coming and joining us this morning. Uh, and uh, thank you to the, uh, the pr- producers who asked all the great questions. So we didn't come up with any of these questions. They just, the producers watch this, they're watching and they're all uh, a- asking these questions throughout the show. So thank you so much for your contribution. Thank you to the panelists uh, for both the first hour and the second hour. We can't do this without you. Um, and uh, and it's, it, it was a great, great day of, of questions there. Um, and, uh, and thank you to the incredible team on the back end. This, this show takes somewhere between 15 and 30 people to launch every single day, seven days a week. Uh, there's people that are planning it. There's people who are doing the development work, the automation work that we have here. It's a little bit less physical, uh, more virtual, but we have a full automation system here that people are building and, and constantly working on. The people on the back end that are cutting the show uh, and managing the questions and managing all the other aspects that make this show work. So we really appreciate all of your work. Uh, we, the Tlaloc Traversal, uh, we traveled 88,000 miles, 142,000 kilometers today, uh, answering these questions. And that's more than 700 million bananas for scale. All right, let's go ahead and jump into After Hours. That's great. Cool show. That's right. Very cool show. show. Yeah.
I'm going to go back to animating my office. Just get to see if the lights will turn off. Thank you for coming. Yeah, it's great. Thank you, guys. It's really, really awesome. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Fantastic, Howard. All right, I'm going to jump.